You're about to listen to a message by Pastor Oge Ogwe, the lead pastor of Circle Church International. He envisions all men living Christ-centered lives. Be blessed as you listen. Do you understand what I'm saying? So, you woke up in the morning and took note of the fact that it was 3.52, right? Now, you've checked your wristwatch multiple other times during the day. But you never registered all the other times that you observed. Till the one time you happened to check and it was 352. And you're like, why am I seeing this number everywhere? No, you have, you've seen numerous numbers. Your mind is just creating a pattern. Do you understand what I'm saying? Ah, so, like I said, it's coincidence. Now, rule of thumb. Can God use such a coincidence to communicate with his children? Yes. Do you understand? The difference between what I just said and angel numbers is what I just said is not a doctrine. In fact, the person who God used to communicate like once shouldn't expect it again. Do you understand? Don't go looking for it. Don't go saying, okay, so my, my lucky number is, it uh, doesn't exist. <laughs> Don't go looking for those things. That's, that's how it works. So can God use such coincidences to communicate with his kids? Yeah, he can. Well, at the same time, are you with me? At the same time, um, we shouldn't make a doctrine out of it. So what's my take on angel numbers? It's coincidence. Let me hear it. Is that for me? Appreciate. Thank you. Again, stop looking for patterns. If if. Imagine what, imagine what our miracle services will be if I had one template, a stencil, by which I make sense of all the interactions of God towards me. Do you understand? It, it will be chaotic. It will be chaotic. Imagine if, for instance, um, what is in my heart is that every time you see a car, or every time you feel a car, or you sense a car, then it's somebody trying to run away or something like that. You know, maybe the one time, that's what it meant. So every other time. So now this last miracle service, there was a, there was a word of knowledge I had for someone who wanted to go into a car business. Started from me seeing a person with a car, right? I, would, I wouldn't have interpreted it right. I would have gone, oh, you want to run. We must never try to eliminate the involvement of the Holy Ghost in the interpretation of signals, spiritual signs. So you may, you may be seeing a number or you might be seeing a letter. Ask him, what is this for? What am I seeing this for? Don't forget that God distributes the gifts as he wills. Now, there are many debates. Some people say as he wills would refer to as the man 
wills. As some people say, as he wills, we refer to as God wills. Whether it is God or man in that place, God is still the one distributing the gifts. And so we cannot eliminate the hand of God and the involvement of God in seeing the gift from its beginning to its end. So you get a word of knowledge or and and or you get you see a vision. You don't know what that vision means. Do you understand what I'm saying? And then the Holy Ghost gives you a prompting in your heart. When you see a vision, don't run off and interpret it. There is no interpretation. It's like tongues. You and I can say the exact syllables, the exact same syllables in tongues. And we mean different things. Do you understand what I'm saying? Good. So there's no interpretation. There's no translation for your vision. Do you understand what I'm saying? The translation is in the hands of the Holy Ghost. He alone will be able to handle that vision and tell you this is the direction it should go in. Do you understand? This is what you ought to pray about or, or what you ought to... Uh-huh. So, okay, I'll take one more question and then we'll go into Bible study. All right. And I, I had it on the point that there was actually a coded word for Emperor which the Muslim people agree about. And one was saying it's, um, what was it? It was like the Antichrist. And it was acting on the fact that it's actually not a particular number, it's just a thing to do that opposes God. Okay. Six six six. Okay, let's start like this. There is a number, right? That number is six hundred and sixty-six, or six. Um, how did he say? Is it six hundred six score and six? Uh huh. So six six six. So um, six hundred three score rather. And six. So there is a number which is like the first and most important thing. Now, you know what? Can we can we look at where it is in scripture so that we don't we don't speculate? I have answers, but I, I want us to read. I, I think I, I don't know where it is actually. I think it's Reve- can someone just look it up for me? It's in the book of Revelations, definitely. I think Revelations chapter five or six. You can just Google it, 666 in the Bible. Like, why don't you guys use Google for these things? (laughs) 13, all right. Verse 18, thank you. Now, Let's start reading from verse 13. Okay, 11. And I beheld another beast come up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb, and he spoke as a dragon. And he exercised all the power of the first beast before him, 
and caused the earth and them that dwell therein to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. And he did great wonders, so that he made fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men, and deceived them that dwell on the earth by the means of those miracles which he had power to do, which he had power to do in the sight of the beast, saying to them that dwell on the earth that they should make an image to the beast which had the wound by his sword and did leave. And he had power to give life unto the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause that as many as would not worship the image of the beast should be killed. And he caused all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and bond, to receive a mark in their right hand or in their foreheads, and that no man might buy or sell, save he that had the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. Verse 18. Here is wisdom. Let him that understandeth, on, let him that hath understanding count the number of the beast. For it is the number of a man and his number, are you with me? Is 603 score and 6. Now, it's interesting when, let's start from here. When we want to investigate Bible opinion, are you with me? The first thing we want to do is do away with preconceived notion. Do you know what preconceived notions are? All right. The first thing we want to do is do away with preconceived notion. That is, try as much as possible to eliminate all those thoughts that we have because of previous ideologies that we have bought into. Are you with me? Good. So now, now when you eliminate that, the first thing you would realize is, unless in a verse earlier than this, this verse of scripture, are you with me? Doesn't seem to be speaking about the Antichrist. Hmm? Think deeply about that. You don't have any mention of the Antichrist. You don't have any direction given as, as in fact, he says that the thing he's talking about is a beast. Is that correct? So the thing that bore this mark was a beast. Now, there are two ways he could have meant. It could have either been a literal beast or a figurative beast. In which case, if it was figurative, then it would be a man with beastly attributes. But now, because of the nature of the writing of the book of Revelations, it's difficult to understand if what he's saying is something that has happened or will happen. Because he ends, you know, he says, when, when he's reading verse 11, he says, And I beheld another beast coming out of the earth. It seems like he's narrating a vision he saw about the future. Are we together? But again, if you take a moment and reread it, you can see how it makes sense if you assume he's not talking about the future, but actually something he saw happening 
Does, it make, does, my, does that make sense? Should I take it again? Should I take it again? Verse 11. I beheld a beast coming out from the belly of the earth. Are we together? And I'm, I said, when you read that verse of scripture, right? Are you with me? It is easy to, um, it is easy to think he's writing in, I saw a vision, and in my vision about something that will happen later, I saw a beast coming out of the belly of the earth. And that beast will be given power and authority over men. And that beast would have, it, he would ride under the authority of the first beast that I saw. And there will be an image of that first beast, and this new beast will be given the power to give life to this new beast. It makes sense if you consider that he is relaying a vision about future activities, right? But if you track back and look at it another way, it will also make sense that he was relaying a, an, a past experience by saying, I saw a beast. That is, the beast has already come out. I saw him come out. Do you see how that also makes sense? Are we together? This is why the book of Revelation is a very tricky book to understand. Now, it means that the key to the timeline, are you with me? The key to the timeline will not be in that vision he was telling. The key to the timeline will be at the end of that vision. Where he said, verse 18, here is wisdom. Let him that hath understanding count the number of the beast. For it is the number of a man. And his number is 603 score and 6. Are you with me? So what he's saying is there is a man. Because he says, let him that hath understanding. Which means if you code it properly, you will know who I'm talking about. That's the line. That let him that hath understanding. That's the line that opens the entire thing up. You see, he wouldn't say, let him that hath understanding, if he was speaking ambiguously. I feel like I've lost you guys. Are you with me? Are you with me? He wouldn't say, it's the equivalent of someone in our time saying, if you know, you know. If you know, you know means that whatever it is or whatever remains to be known has already happened. Do you understand? It is just something that if a select few people with access to that knowledge will know. So when he says, let him that had understanding, he's saying that, there, that we all know how we do our things now. So count the number. The number is 600. Three score and six. Are you with me? Are you with me? Good. So this tells you something. That 666, that mark, that number was making reference to a particular person. Because it says, let him that has understanding count the number of the beast. For it is the number of a man. So another thing is, the beast he was speaking about was figurative. Of a man. Are you with me? 
Good. He says, for it is the number of a man. Then he goes on to say, that number is 666. The interesting thing is, we don't have that understanding. Do you understand? We can only know in retrospect what the others knew to help them calculate the number. But make no mistakes. The people who received this letter understood in that time, at that moment, what he was speaking about. Do you get it? Good. So they knew who he was talking about. I don't know if you get what I'm saying. Good. So the only biblically accurate way to view that number 666 is to understand that it was the numerical representation of a man's name or of a man. The numerical representation of a man. Uh, are we together? So if you, let, let, let's do an example. Let's use David. D is the fourth letter, yeah? Right? A is the first, right? So that's five. V is the 23rd. U, V, W, X, Y, Z. 22nd. No, 23rd. 23rd, right? V is the 23rd. That brings us to 28, right? I is the ninth letter. That brings us to 28 plus 9. 38. 37, rather. So that brings us to 37. Then D being the fourth letter takes us to 41. Now, if amongst us, we already had that knowledge... That there's a that Pastor David's numerical assignment is 41. Uh, let's say, for the intents of examples, Pastor David was a bully, right? And so we wanted to report Pastor David to a higher authority in a letter, and we know he would intercept this letter and read it. When I'm writing this letter to report to the higher authority, I'm not going to say his name is David Ovier. I'm going to say, the one whose number is 41. Knowing fully well that those ones, when they receive it, they can decode it. They have the understanding to count it. Which is the way he ended that, this thing. He says, let him that hath understanding, let him count the number of the beast. For the beast is a man. Do you, do you understand what I'm saying? Now, this is very important because you would then realize that he was speaking to occurrences that already existed at the time. Do you understand? At the time. So the, the, the beast and his temptations and all of those things he wrote there would have been, just like the beast was figurative, the actions of the beast would therefore be figurative of the actions of a man. Are you with me? So, therefore, we'll quickly learn that 666 is not the number of the Antichrist as has been suggested up until now. You see, because there is a different doctrine as one person. The Antichrist, rather, refers to an institution of opposition 
against Christ. Are you with me? Are you with me? So, if you think deeply about it, right, you would realize that there is no real reason from Scripture for us to expect the ascension of one man to a position of power and that ascension will signify the end of times. Are you with me? This is a class on um, es- um, eschatology. There's no real reason. You, you can't prove it from scripture that there will be a man, Elon Musk or whomever, that there will be a man who will ascend to the highest corridors of power and then because of that ascension to the highest corridors of power, he will then start to turn the world. But what you can prove is that there will be prevailing cultures that will signify the end of the world. Prevailing cultures that oppose Christ. Do you understand? And what Christ stands for. The culture will oppose Christ. In fact, now for this one, we have biblical precedence from Genesis. It's a doctrine. You know, I've taught you before. I can't remember all seven of them. But for you to establish a doctrine, it must exist in seed form in Genesis. Let's start from there. It must ex- exist in seed form in Genesis. Do we have in seed form an eschatological, um, theological worldview in the book of Genesis? Yes. Noah and his ark. Now, what was happening with Noah and his ark? Did we have with Noah and his ark one man who rose and became a principality such that he, he took ransom of the world? No. What happened? We had a sinful people, a rebellious culture that rebelled against the doctrines of Christ and the person that the doctrines of God, the nature of God at the time. Do you understand? Good. So, the both of you were not wrong. <laughs> you can't prove that the 666 is the mark of the Antichrist. You can't prove that from scripture. You can't. It's preconceived notions. It's assumptions. But at the same time, it is right that the Antichrist is not just one person. But the Antichrist refers to anybody or system that is opposed to Christ and what he stands for. Did I confuse you? All right. Does anybody want to ask any question on this? Anyone? Anyone? All right. Let us go into an equally... Controversial conversation for the way of Bible study. Have you guys been enjoying the Bible study so far? All right. So we've we've done Ephesians chapter one. We've done from verse one to nine. Right. We've we've covered some ground, and we'll still be covering more ground um, by going deeper. Let's read. So we'll start from verse nine. Having made known unto us, uh, let, let us pray before we read. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you because the entrance of your word gives light and it gives understanding to the simple. 
Thank you because in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the same was with God in the beginning. And all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, the life was the light of men. That light shines in darkness, and darkness cannot comprehend it. Lord, we pray that as your Word is taught today, it will shine in dark corners of our hearts and bring illumination in the name of Jesus. The world dwelt amongst flesh, and we behold his glory as of the only begotten, full of um, the only begotten of the Father, full of glory, grace, and glory. Lord, we pray that as your word is taught, we will see Jesus as you would have us see him. And we pray that as the word is taught today, Jesus is glorified, and we are edified. All right, media team, before we go forward, please don't blind me. That thing is directly in my eyes, and it's giving me a headache. Thank you very much. that's a relief. That's actually a relief. All right. Shall we go into scripture? Ephesians chapter 1 verse 9. Ephesians 1 9. How was your day? How are you? Are you good? All right. It says, Having made known unto us the mystery of his will, which is where we stopped last week. We, we explored what the mystery of his will is. And I, I started by explaining to you why it is called a mystery. All right. Greek word musterion. Do you remember? Meaning a hidden thing. Not a thing that cannot be known but a thing that is hidden to be searched out. Do you see the difference? Do you see the difference? A mystery is a thing that is hidden to be searched out. Like a puzzle, musterion, the mystery of his will, which means that God's will in the Old Testament was hidden. Are you with me? And we established that in the New Testament, that will is revealed. And we went through a couple of scriptures, is that correct? Um, at, the, at the apex of it, we read Colossians. Colossians chapter 1, I think, verse 27, 25 to 27, where he talked about the mystery that had been hidden from the ages that has now been made known unto us, which mystery is Christ in us, the hope of glory. Is that correct? Good. Now, why are we... Why are we going through this? Before we continue, it says the mystery of his will. This tells you something interesting. There is a mystery. Is that correct? And we've established that. But the next thing I want us to establish is the will is singular. The will is singular. We must finish verse 9 today. (laughs) The will, W-I-L-L, is singular. What does this mean? It means that God has one will. And I will explain... um, you know, more in depth before we move on from verse 9. But God has one will. The will is singular. 
God doesn't have shifting wheels. Do you understand? Let me say it in another way that you may not understand or that, that, that you may understand. God's will for this man, are you with me? Is God's will for this woman. God's will for this woman is God's will for this woman. God doesn't have, God didn't create him and say, hmm, this is my will for you. They created her, hmm, this is my will for you. There are some he would create and say, ah, I'm tired. Just do what you want. I'll figure you out later. God doesn't have shifting wheels. Are you with me? Romans chapter 12, verse 2. Romans chapter 12, verse 2. Hallelujah. Romans 12, 2. He says, and be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. Everybody read the last line together, want to go. That you may prove what is that good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. Say good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Now, I've seen a school of people that say, that means there are three levels to God's will. There is God's good will, there is God's acceptable will, and there is God's perfect will. That's wrong. <laughs> God's will is good, God's will is acceptable, and God's will is perfect. You see, it's not, it, it's, it is... It, it's not, it's wrong, it's not correct. What is that? That is referring to one thing. That good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So many times, a prayer to discover God's will for your life may fall on deaf ears. I will explain with time as I move on. All right. We'll, in fact, we are entering something, we are entering a conversation called predestination. And I think if you understand predestination, um, to understand predestination, you have to start from God's will. You have to start from a good understanding of God's will. How many of you have heard of predestination before? Some were predestined for heaven. So we, will, we will explore it in a, in, a, in a few minutes. But God's will is singular. When you read through the New Testament, you read Paul's writings. You even read Jesus' writings. I have come to do the will of my Father. Are you with me? That single will, that thing that is God's focus, that's what I've come to do. It's not, a, it's not arbitrary. It's not, it is not um, with respect to the observer. Are we together? It's not with respect to the observer. God's will is singular. Amen? Amen? Good. So how come many of us find multiple, so God has, you know, God can lead you to where you should marry, 
and all of those things. All of those underlying instructions serve his will. Do you understand what I'm saying? All of those, please pay attention to this. When you understand this, you will understand the dichotomy of God's will or God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. Are you with me? You will understand how those two things interplay. Because there's a school of thought that teaches that God's sovereignty is absolute in every situation. And so God is that I was having a debate with one of such young men. I don't know how many of you saw on Twitter just last week. I think it was on Saturday. Having a debate with a young man. And um, he was talking about how God's sovereignty is not deterministic in nature. And, um, for those of you that don't know what I just said, what, what that means is, um, <laughs> this is how the conversation started. He said, um, oh, what's the word he used? can't remember it. But it was something along the lines of God's, God permitted, why can't I remember? Ah, yes. He used the word decree. Hmm? So he said, it's not in God's perfect decree, but it's in, it is in a decree. He permitted the decree. So I, I said, man of God, good afternoon. Before we even go into theology, do you know what decree means? A decree is a statement that is backed by authority. That's what a decree is. Anything that happens as a result of a decree is to be accredited to the one who decreed. Is that correct? So, if, if God decreed your death, then you die. God forbid you will not die. That death is to be accredited to the one that made the decree. You cannot permissively decree. It's a paradox. It's an oxymoron. <laughs> Do you understand? Maybe you don't see it yet. You cannot passively decree a thing. <laughs> For you to decree, you must actively do it. Do you understand? So there is no permission on that decree. L let me explain. Or let me explain further. Say you have a your you are a judge or you are a lawgiver and then you write a law that says every criminal that or every man that steals even if it be a cube of maggie you know every man that steals even if it's a seasoning cube will die that is the law. Can that pass as a decree? Is that correct? It will pass as a decree, right? Now, your son goes and steals. <laughs> right? So they arrest your son. Let's say your son stole a pencil. Something inconsequential that people could have overlooked. They arrest your son. 
And as per the law, they kill your son. Who is responsible for your son's death? <laughs> the man that killed him, the man that put the axe to the head. Oh no, he's just the executioner. What is he executing? Your will. <laughs> your decree. You are responsible for his death. You didn't permit him to die. You killed him. Through somebody else's hands. But it was still you nonetheless. There is no version of extreme sovereignty that excuses God for the evils in this world. Let me say it like this. If the idea that we run by or run with in the Christian faith is that God controls every single thing, then it's one of two things. Three, it is either he's extremely incompetent or he's extremely evil or he's naive. He, 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 no, not naive, but he cannot keep his promise. There's a way someone, this is the way Rabbi Zachariah said it. He says, if God is sovereign and he controls everything, then it is either he is not all-powerful or he is not all-good. But he can be both and be controlling everything that we are seeing. Does it make sense? I, th I think that's easy to understand. Let let's look at it like this. Um. <laughs> People are raped every day. Um, Hitler killed 6 million Jews. Stalin did worse than Hitler. I was watching, I was watching a documentary of some men that sold their souls to the devil. There's this young man. Have you ever heard of this phrase, um, drinking the Kool-Aid? It's a phrase, it's a, it's a phrase they use in the United States. They, they drew it from this, I've forgotten his name for some weird reason. Forgotten his name. But he ran a sect of the Church of Jesus Christ of the Latter-day Saints. You know that church? Church of Jesus Christ. Hmm? It was a sect of Mormons. They are Mormons. They are called Mormons. Church of... You must have seen that. Many of you don't know that that's what it is, but you see their churches everywhere. They have that steeple. Not all of them uh, have weird doctrines. To be fair, some of them just... Or let me say it like this. All of them have an aberration from the Bible. There's this other book. Why am I forgetting the names? The Book of Mormon was received by some guy. Actually, no, not Joseph Smith, which is interesting. Apparently, they claim that an angel appeared to a group of people in some place, right? At the same time, Jesus was walking on the earth. And so when Jesus was teaching his disciples... Jesus, no, not an angel. Jesus also went to that other place and thought that it's a very weird. I know all of this because there was one Thursday I was debating with one of them outside. I actually didn't come into service. I was, I came to attend service and then we just got caught up in that debate. I was debating one of them outside. All right. But then this particular sect of Mormons, they, they took it too far. Right. So he, he, started to teach doctrines around how he is divine. 
All right. And um, the more wives you marry, the closer you will get to heaven. So I think as at the time he died, he was married to 87 women, I think. He was, and many of them were children. Many of them were children, right? And so the, the United States, um, they wanted to arrest him for, on many counts of child trafficking, child, because he now used to give his children off, the children under his care. He would give them off to non-Mormons, but depraved men who would want to sleep. So he was running a whole sex ring out of his church, right? And, um, they wanted to arrest him. And when he saw that they were closing in on him and his congregation, he ordered his congregation to drink Kool-Aid. Kool-Aid is like nutrition, right? But it was Kool-Aid laced with cyanide. They willingly drank it. I'm talking over a thousand people here. I'm not talking 200 people. No, over a thousand people. I think one five was the number. I don't know if you've seen the story online. Yeah. I've forgotten the guy's name. Jane Jones, that's his name. Yeah, that's the one. He he ordered them. If God controls everything, why is Jim Jones going to go to hell for his actions? He was just doing the will of God. Can you see how we cannot make God's will arbitrary? Especially because the Bible didn't. Must be very careful. Think about it. What is it about Jim Jones's actions that he will be held accountable for when he was just submitting himself to the will of God? Can't answer that question. Can't answer that question. I've had this conversation with many Calvinists, many of the Reformed circles, and they always get stuck on this point. They will say, you are confusing God's permissive will with God's direct will. And I'm like, if it is remotely God's will, whether permitted or direct, then man can't be held responsible for it. Do you understand what I'm saying? I... So I, I grew up Anglican, most of you know. I grew up in an Anglican church. And then from the Anglican church, I joined the Word of Faith movement. And for a long time, I was saved. I was already preaching God's Word. But I was preaching the prosperity gospel, which is in itself a false gospel. I was preaching the prosperity gospel. And then in school, this group of Calvinists, you know, started to rise and they seemed to have a better understanding of the gospel than I did. They could, they could better exegete some verses of scriptures than I could. And I'm, I'm a very sincere person. I, I don't like to deceive myself. I don't like to pretend like I wrote the Bible. If I think you know it better than me, I would concede and say, okay, you've caught me. <laughs> Can I learn from you? You know what I mean? And so at some point, I was listening to their teachings. I listened to many of the men they revere and talk to. 
I, I, I listened to a lot of them. But one day, I sat down and I thought of what the God of the Calvinists, I, I thought of who he is, and I realized that God is evil. Let me walk you through it. The Calvinists have a, this is not a teaching on Calvinism, but we're doing Bible study. I can as well take you through this. We don't have a Bible study plan, so I can as well. The Calvinists have a system of thinking, a five points. Um, you know how you have confession of faith? Five points. called the tulip. T-U-L-I-P. How many of you are with me? Can, can someone drag that board for me? Not, not your pastor at that place. Someone else should please drag that board for me. Um, I think Michael, Michael's going to do it. So let me write for you guys. Do you know why I'm taking my time to go through all of this in this, in this um, Bible study session? Because many Christians don't know how to have these conversations when they come up, and they will come up. As you grow, as you go out to talk to people, as you evangelize, you will hear these questions. So they had a five-point system of thinking. They called it the tulip. Is there any other marker around? I find it interesting that you just happen to have markers in your bag, but that's fine. I'm happy you do. Thank you. <laughs> so they had the tulip. All right, so let me walk you through it. This stands for total depravity. This stands for unconditional. Election. This stands for limited. Atonement. I'll explain all of these things to you guys now. This stands for irresistible grace. Irresistible. How do they spell this thing again? T-I. The another T-I bar. Uh, I knew I went to school. <laughs> irresistible grace. And then this stands for perseverance. I was correct. Perseverance of the saints. So this is the tulip. So this is the story. Man is incapable of good. He is totally depraved. He is incapable of good. Those of you on this side, just come this way, please, so that I just know that everybody can see what I'm doing because I might not be able to move from here. Man is tot totally incapable of good. All right? He is not good. He is totally depraved. That's what the first law states. Therefore, God unconditionally elected man for himself. But he unconditionally elected some men. Not all men. Some. Are we together? Now, it was for this some that he died making it a limited atonement. The atonement is for a few. All right? Are you with me? 
Now, for those who, that's this sum, are you with me? Those who he died for, it doesn't matter what they do with their lives. They will never be able to resist the grace of God when it comes. Do you understand? Once the gospel is preached, they can't resist it. They will end up being saved. What? Oh, I'm not done. <laughs> they will never be able to say no to it. It's irresistible grace. And that irresistible grace will lead to their perseverance. So it doesn't matter what they are going through. They will stay the course. The tulip. Are you with me? Good. Now, this is why I think this God is evil. Let's start from the fact that it is not true that man is not good. There's such a thing as civic good. There's moral law. In fact, this is one of the things by which we argue the existence of God. The fact that even irreligious people have moral law. There are certain things they won't do. Uh -huh. So it's not true that man is totally depraved. Man cannot come to God. Man is evil. The heart of man is desperately wicked. That's true. But that man is totally incapable of any good, oh, that's a lie. But this is why this God is evil. You don't... Okay, then the overarching um, theology or doctrine over all of this is something called sovereignty. Which simply means that God is in control in the most absolute sense of the word. <laughs> Are you with me? So what this means, this word means, is that these two guys, we're playing out God's script. <laughs> Are we together? Now, this is why this God is evil. He created a man, hmm? predestined the man to fall, because that's sovereignty and predestination. He created the man, predestined him to fall. So the man had no choice but to fall. Do you understand? Then when that man fell, he selected some of them are you with me? And died for those ones. Those ones can't resist him. They will persevere till the end. But then he chose to punish the ones that he didn't select for not selecting him. <laughs> and the interesting thing is this. The men don't know whether they are selected or not. Do you understand? This God is evil. <laughs> oh, I'm serious. It's evil. <laughs> I, I, for a while, listen, for a while, I, I had conversations. I, I was listening. I fellowshiped with, with them a lot because I was confused. I was learning about God, you know, proper theology at the time. And if you, if you ever come across a, a reformed person, they will bamboozle you in the right sense of the word bamboozle. By the time you hear English and you see grammar and they throw words at you, you feel like surely they know what they are saying. 
just start picking apart their theology. Oh, I, I was kicked out of a fellowship once. <laughs> I didn't let the fellowship continue. I said, ah. Then I, I traveled to Kaduna briefly for, I, w- I went to visit a friend. And then I, I learned they were having a fellowship. I said, I must go. I, must, I went for their fellowship. I, I, I did it in Abuja. I did it in, in Kaduna. So in Kaduna, I, I argued with them till the fellowship time ran out. So when I went to Abuja, they didn't let me in. When I went for the affair, they said, ah, no, it's not possible. You cannot come in. But this is wrong. Do you understand? We cannot view the sovereignty of God that does not, we can't, let me, ah, these people will swear for us. (laughs) There cannot be a teaching on God's sovereignty that absolves man of his responsibility. In fact, let me quote one of the teachers of the Calvinist movement. His name is John Piper. John Piper said, God's sovereignty and man's responsibility are two parallel concepts Though not equal in magnitude, but required to make the system run, I'm paraphrasing at this point. What John Piper was saying is that you must have a balance, sort of, between God's sovereignty and man's responsibility for the entire thing to work. If we only come at it from man's responsibility and we neglect God's sovereignty, it's wrong. If we only come at it from God's sovereignty and we in some way excuse man's responsibility, we are wrong. Do you understand? Uh This is why God's will must be understood first. Because it is this will, it it is to carry out this will that we see the sovereignty of God. Do you understand? It is to exercise his will that he, or to accomplish his will that he exercises his sovereignty. Do you people know that you are eating good in this church? Because this is, this theology class right here. All right? So now, we're going back to Ephesians 1. He says, having made known unto us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure. So his will is according to his good pleasure. He is pleased. God is pleased in the execution of his will. Does that make sense? Good. According to his good pleasure, which he hath proposed in himself. So here is another thing you will learn about God's will. Number one, God's will pleases him. Are you with me? Number two, God's will was first proposed in himself, which means God's will is not affected by other people's actions.
Are you with me? Now, verse 9 ends in a colon, meaning I want to explain or I want to carry on, you know, expatiating on what I've been saying. He says that in the dispensation, in the dispensation of the fullness of times. That word is kairos. That phrase, the dispensation of the fullness of times, is best represented by one word, kairos. That is, at the opportune moment, at the right time. Are you with me? Good. So, God's will, number three, is time-specific. Are you with me? Good. It says, at the di- everybody read verse 10 together, one, two, go. That in the dispensation of the fullness of times, he might gather together in one all things where? Number four. God's will is Christ. Are we together? Can you see how we arrived at at this conclusion? What is this will? That at the fullness of the dispensation of times, he will gather together in one all things in Christ. That is, God's will is all men where? Now, can we see? Uh, let's finish reading verse 10 and I'll say what I want to say. Um, he says that he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both whom, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in him. So, to be more specific, Kai, we apologize, you guys. To be more specific, God's will is A, the Lordship of Jesus. Or let me not say A. God's will is the Lordship of Jesus. How was this Lordship acquired? A, incarnation. Are you with me? I just taught you guys this in church now. Good. A, incarnation. B, resurrection. Are we together? Now, you need to understand something. One way you know you are on the right track when it comes to Bible doctrine is if you have 
corroborative knowledge across scripture. When you read the epistles, when you read the book of Acts, do you see the epistles or the apostles rather talk that way? Not just teach it, but talk that way. So when you see Paul say something like, um, Philippians chapter 2, is that it? God had highly exalted him and given him a name. Philippians 2, right? Let's, let's read Philippians 2. I think these classes are some of my favorites to prepare for. All right. I, I, I just flow. Philippians 2. It says, um, verse 5. Let this mind be in you which also was in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him, are you with me? The form of a servant, that's incarnation. Is that correct? Uh huh. The form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. Incarnation, right? Good. We, um, and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore, are you with me? God hath highly exalted him. That's the resurrection. Are we together? And given him a name which is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of things in heaven, of things on the earth, and of things under the earth. And every tongue should confess that what? And he ends it with, to the glory of God. That is, when we see the Lordship of Jesus, we see the glory of God. God's perfect will has been executed. Are you with me? Okay. Uh, well, the ascension is special, but it speaks more to Christ's work for us. Now, of course, all of them, the incarnation, the resurrection, speak to Christ's work for us. But the incarnation and resurrection, make they, they clarify his deity and his lordship. But the ascension clarifies our justification. You see... Um, um, the, the book of Hebrews, this is a deviation from my teaching, but the book of Hebrews teaches that um, since the things on the earth, referring to the, the things in the temple, were purified by blood, he said it was it behoved on him to ascend into the heavenly places to purify those things in the heavens by blood. Now, if you understand Jewish rituals and um, the Jewish offerings, the, the ones that brought us forgiveness. Are you with me? If you understand them, how it worked was when blood has been offered, they would then dip hyssop inside that blood and use it to wipe the seat in the temple, in the Holy of Holies, and those um, sacraments that, that um, represented your forgiveness. Do you understand? In Jesus' ascension, we have a replication of those actions but in a temple that lives forever and is eternal. So Jesus' ascension speaks more to, I think, I don't know if this is what I'm teaching for Liberty Bible course, but something along those lines. Jesus' ascension speaks more to our 
um, justification. So it, it does have its significance. All right. In fact, just a very quick side note. It's, it's worthy of note that at his resurrection, he, he comes out and this woman wants to touch him. And he says, I haven't ascended to my father and your father. That is, in my ascension, um, your position is sealed. Do you understand? So, yeah. Where was I? Where was I, please? Good. All right. So we see the glory of God perfectly executed or um, perfectly seen in the Lordship of Jesus. And um, this perfectly encapsulates the will of God. Now, let us talk about God's sovereignty. I mean, for a minute. Now that we know God's will, there are certain instances in Scripture where the sovereignty of God is seen expressly. Uh, where God designs a thing irrespective of human um, imputes. Can we name some of them? The creation of the world. Let's start from there. The creation of the world. Creation of the world. What's, what? The virgin birth. Anyone else? Jacob and Esau. Thank you. Anyone else? Pharaoh and the Egyptians. And the Israelites. Thank you. Anything else? No. Let's leave resurrection out of it for now. It's still an act of God's sovereignty, but it's clear. It's clearer. <laughs> it's clearer. That it's, okay, let's just put it. Does anybody want to add anything to this list? Think deep. Off the top of my head, I've exhausted what I have, so think deep. Maybe there's something I've forgotten. Which blood? Noah's flood. Eh, okay, Noah's flood. Choosing Israel. Anything else? Abraham's call. Okay, okay. Anything else? Salvation. No, I'm, I'm talking about ex, um, events in the Bible. Sodom and no. He asked Moses, he asked um, Abraham to pray. He allowed Abraham to prevail on him. Mm-hmm. 
Nineveh. He allowed Jonah to prevail on him. <laughs> Lot's wife. No, that's not it. That's not. Lot's wife was punishment. It was not, it was not an expression of sovereignty. Alright, let's start. The reason why I've listed all of these things out to you hmm, is if you just think of God as some arbitrary divine being that just does what comes to his mind, just like, hmm. Ooh. Nah, it can't be sovereignty. It's what God did it in response to. So, in fact, he says, um, if, if they have one mind, if, so he did it in response to something the man was doing. So, no. We establish God's will is self-proposed. That is, the things that are on this list are things that, if you just think about it, like God just woke up and chose that the, young, the older will serve the younger. Something like that. Like, what did this guy do to God? Nothing. And it was from the womb. He just looked at their mother and said, you're pregnant. It's twins you have. Ah! The older will serve the younger. <laughs> Judas is now. Uh, that's not sovereignty. It is in some sense, but ah, we have to do a lot of gymnastics to get there. <laughs> so let's go through it. One of the things that you will observe when you read through all of this is, or before, before I say that, if you go through a deterministic approach, to God's sovereignty, you would think that God just arbitrarily got up and did these things because he wanted to, because it was fun to him. So God messed with Jacob and Esau because why not? You understand what I'm saying? Yes. But if you reread Ephesians 1, and I think this is where a lot of people who are stuck on the sovereignty teaching. I think this is where they miss it. If you read Ephesians 1, there are some things you will notice. His will is for his good pleasure. Are you with me? And that will is the submission of all things in Christ. Which means that by definition, every time we see God exercise his sovereignty, in the Bible, it must be for the Lordship of Jesus. Am I making sense? Are, are we making sense? So, why did God call Abraham? It wasn't because of Abraham. Do you understand? It wasn't because Abraham was such a good guy. It was God's choice that Abraham would father a generation of Israelites. And his son would come through the Israelites. So why did God choose Abraham Christ? So... Jesus' statement would make more sense now when he said, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. Because 
Abraham wasn't God's choice. Christ was. Do you understand? And God chose that, that, that the coming of Christ will happen through Abraham's lineage. He wasn't doing that for Abraham's sake. He was doing it for Christ's sake. Are you with me? It's the same thing with these two guys. He wasn't doing it for this guy's sake. He was doing it for Christ's sake. There was nothing special about Jacob. He was God's choice. Why did God choose him? Christ. <laughs> when God was choosing Jacob, he wasn't thinking this guy will be a fine boy. Let's choose him. No, he just decided, my and Kai, God Jesus. I have a lot to teach on this, but I'm still studying on it. So I wouldn't say that. I like, I like to not um, teach things I'm not completely sure about. But some people argue that the way God chose the older to serve the younger is a picture of how the old will give place to the new. And the new would rule above the old. Making reference to the old covenant and the new covenant. Are you with me? Again, I'm still studying on it, so don't run off with it. Don't go and start teaching that. Did you know? You say, my pastor said. I said, I did not say. I will go and play this video for them. I said, I said I was still studying. I'm not sure. Are you with me? So, we see it with these ones. Even with Pharaoh and the Israelites. Because you have held my firstborn, I will hold your firstborn. Who was the firstborn? The Israelites? No! Jesus! <laughs> Do you understand? So why did God drown this guy and his army in the Red Sea? <laughs> the Lordship of Jesus. Are you with me? Good. When you read, <laughs> when you read um, First Peter about Noah's flood, you see Noah talk about how the flood was a picture of the salvation that will come in the spirit. So why did this happen? To show the work of Christ. <laughs> Sovereignty is such an interesting concept. God did not, in the Old Testament, arbitrarily just do things because he wanted to. No. He always stepped in when his plan was either threatened or he needed to move his plan to the next step. Do you, do you get it? Do you understand? You can go through the list. I mean, of course, resurrection is obvious. The virgin birth is obvious, right? The creation of the world started everything, so that's, that's also obvious. So you can go through this list and realize that even when the Bible says he has created all things for his pleasure, that pleasure is Christ. Are you with me? I was created to please God means I was created to serve Christ. Are we together? So, don't run off being scared that what if what pleases God today is that I should walk up and down in my boxer shorts, you know, on the streets to just show God that I'm loyal to him. God is not that kind of person. Do you understand what I'm saying? <laughs> Praise the Lord. So when we approach the sovereignty of God, we would see that this allows for the responsibility of man.
Why are there wars? Man, man, man is the reason why there are wars. His heart is desperately wicked. He is sinful beyond measure, but God in his sovereignty has made a way of escape for man. Are we together? Are we together? Why do people kill people? Why did Osama bin Laden do all he did? Why, um, Shekau. Why? It's not because God determined that Shekau will do all that he has done. No. On the contrary, God gave man authority over the earth. It's in the scriptures. Is that correct? Good. So God's sovereignty will be seen in trying to correct the errors of man through Christ Jesus. Are you? Are we together? Are we together? Let me see. What's the time? Oh, I still have a little bit of time. Do I have any questions? I'm expecting questions. Okay, I have your question. I have your question. Let me start with you. Can you come and use the mic? There are people online, please. So, when you were explaining sovereignty, you made mention of something. You said God shows or God shows a sovereignty when his plan is being threatened or he wants to move to the next phase. And I kind of wants to move it forward. forward. I kind of get um, a little bit of eek there, like can God's plan be threatened? Yeah. I think I think there's something we need to understand. I remember I asked one Calvinist this question. You know when somebody short circuits, the uh, <laughs> guy short circuited. <laughs> he said God is all powerful. I said I agree. He said God is sovereign. I agree. He said that means all things are in God's control. He said I said I don't agree. He said how can I believe that God is sovereign and all things are not in His control? I said can a sovereign God determine His sovereignty that man will be responsible for things? And he short circuited. <laughs> If God is sovereign, he has determined that man would have responsibility over things. Do you understand? Man does have free will. Do you get it? And, and, and a lot of people say, um, if man has free will, um, that, then man cannot just do anything. There's still consequence for his actions. No, free will doesn't mean that. Free will does not negate consequence. No, you have freedom of speech. It's freedom after speech, we can't guarantee. <laughs> I thought there was a head of state that said that. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, so, can God's plan be threatened? Yes, Pharaoh. Classic example. You've held my firstborn. I will hold your firstborn. Do you understand? Good. So, um, can God's plan be threatened? Yes. Is he scared? No. Will the plan come to pass? Definitely. Right? But was he threatened? Yeah. <laughs> the threat does not mean it to be stopped. It just means it was a threat. And he will undo that threat any way necessary. If it means killing an entire army, if it means taking firstborn children at night to make sure you get the message, he'll do that. <laughs> and if you still don't get the message, he'll drown all of you in the sea. <laughs> That's God's sovereignty. God is terrible like that. Terrible is not always a bad word. It just means that his, his words, his ways can be terror inspiring. <laughs> All right. Okay, you had a question. 
So I'm from Teacherthon. I learned that God created man for his pleasure. So I'm getting the idea now. Okay, backtracking. That that seemed to me like God created man for his pleasure. And then man would fall and he would send Christ. Not as an afterthought, but because he foresaw what would happen. But now I'm getting the idea that God created man for Christ. So Yeah, that's also correct. Where's the conversation? It seemed like God sent Christ for man. But now it's seeming like God created man for Christ. So I just wanted to get the balance. How do I start with this question? Colossians 1.16. Somebody opened to Colossians 1.16. Another person opened to John 1. And, and let, let's just, before... Like, as you guys are opening, um, one sure way to commit, like, a theological problem is to try to separate them. Did God create man for himself? Is, so did God create man for Christ? Ah, so let's start from there, first of all. The, the work of Christ on the earth. And hi. Okay, this is the one that doesn't work. Sorry, please don't shout at me. is Christ. Who is Christ? It's not a, theolo- it's not a rhetorical question. Throw your answers my way. <laughs> Son of God. And, uh, throw your answers. Son of man. God in flesh. All right. There are two words in theology. You have this word. And you have this word. I really hope I don't confuse you further. What I'm about to teach. I, I know it won't be confusing. I'm, I'm actually, I believe in you guys that. <laughs> Theophany refers to the sightings of God before the, before the New Testament. So the sightings of God in the Old Testament. Now, some people argue that there was no such, that Theophany didn't happen in the Old Testament. It's wrong. Anybody that tells you that God did, God, there was no sighting of God in the Old Testament is not correct. Here's what we mean. Um, in fact, simple ways you can prove it. Um, and I will, I, it will soon make sense why I'm coming this route, all right? Because it, I'm coming this route because of your question. So I want you to see how God is Christ. Like the one who said, let there be light. 
is Christ. In fact, you see that in John 1. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. The one who said, let there be light, is Christ. Now, Theophany, um, we have some group of people that say that all those sightings of God in the Old Testament were angels alone. That's not correct. And here's why. Yes, many of them, on surface level, you can understand them to be angels. Are you with me? But when you read their actions, you would always see that in those sightings, and I'll give you some examples, many times the angel exhibited godlike characters. So, for instance, Gideon. Remember Gideon? Somebody appeared to him. He was the captain of the Lord's hosts. Remember that? Now, some people have said this person is the Holy Ghost. I don't know how true that is. Because the Holy Ghost is a ghost. But But he is God. How do we know? Gideon fell and worshipped him. And he didn't refuse worship. You see, consistently in the Bible, we have a common um, thread or trend. Angels always refuse worship. Don't worship me. I'm only a servant of God. Don't worship me. I'm not the one that you should worship. Do you, do you hear what I'm saying? But the one time that um, um, this guy stood before Gideon, are you with me? And Gideon worshipped this guy. He didn't refuse the worship. In fact, that is worthy of note because it is one of the ways we prove the deity of Christ that he never refused worship. Do you understand? Another instance would be um, the one that appeared before Moses. The one that appeared before Moses. Um, number 16, is that the one? No. I will pass by you in all my goodness and um, I will show you. You know that scripture? Where Moses said, show me your glory? Good. Now, Please pay attention. Why? Now, it is true, again, on surface level, that ah, that was an angel. But no angel will talk like that. I will, I will pass by you in all my goodness, in all my glory. Angels don't have glory. Do you understand? So when you hear someone speak like that, it's God speaking. So, that was called the theophany, the appearance of God in the Old Testament. Another example of the theophany is three men appeared before Abraham, and one of them was God himself appearing before Abraham. Does that make sense? Uh, No. None of those instances is Christ. In fact, there is no such thing as Christophany. This one is theologically incorrect. None of those instances is Christ. Why? Because although we have God appear looking like like a man, he was not a man. Are you with me? So who is Christ? Christ is God in flesh. So when we talk about the lordship of Christ, we are talking about the lordship of God. 
why Christ? And this is, I, I don't have time to do this teaching, but I've touched on it a couple of times. We see the difference in the Trinity with respect to salvation. Do you understand? So why Christ? Christ because salvation. Are you with me? Why God in flesh? Because salvation. Hebrews 2. Because we share in flesh, he came in flesh. So before man was created, what was God's purpose for man to serve him? To, that he, God, be Lord over man. Now, when man was created, man started living according to that purpose. At man's fall, man deviated from his original purpose and handed lordship over him to someone else. Um, Paul says, you are slave to whom you serve. Do you understand? How did God buy back that lordship? This man, Jesus. Do you understand? And so the purpose still remains the same. The lordship of God over all. But because of the fall of man, that lordship has to happen through Christ. That's why the book of Revelations at some point says the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of, of, of Christ, of God, and of his Christ. Do you understand? So, God, Christ was not made for man. Man was made for Christ. But Christ was only made necessarily because man, um, Christ was only made necessary because man fell. But man was made for Christ. So the scriptures are asked you to read Colossians chapter 1, verse 16. In him all things consist, and through him were all things made. I think that's Colossians 1 16. For by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones, dominions, principalities, or powers. All things were created by him and for him. Do you see? All things were created by him, Christ, and for him. So Christ wasn't made for man. Man was made for Christ. Does that answer your question? I'm glad it did. No confusions, right? God is good. Did I see one more hand raised? In, in? All right. Please, you have to use it. And I don't know your name. Nice to meet you. So I want to ask a question. Um, we've been talking about the old Christ story and how it started from the beginning and God had to make this old plan of trying to redeem himself to man as the sovereign God. And I'm just asking, like, when Christ came and everything happened and he died and the old story is like, is there no, like, story and, like, he has come, he has been redeemed, then that's all. Let's wrap up the show. That's exactly why these are called the end times. Because this is the end of the story. We are in the end of the story. <laughs> Do you understand? It's why this is called the end times. Because we are in the end of this story. The end of this story is that the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdom of our God and of his Christ. And so why are we here? We are here to make sure that that happens. In fact, this is what I taught day two of Teachathon, that the original mandate to have dominion and be fruitful was thwarted by the sin of man, but is fulfilled by the man in Christ. Do you understand that we can now go out and be fruitful 
and multiply and let the hearts of men be turned to God. Yeah, so end times. That's what end times means. Are we together? All right, all right, all right, all right. God is good. This is 7.30. I'm afraid to start (laughs) verse next. (laughs) Oh, Jesus. Okay, verse 11. In whom, who is whom? All right. In whom also we have obtained an inheritance. What inheritance did we obtain? If we keep going at this pace, we're not going to finish the book of Ephesians till the end of this year. What inheritance did we obtain? In whom also, he said, um, verse 11, we have obtained an inheritance. What is the inheritance for the believer. Titus chapter 3. Titus chapter 3, verse 3 to 7. Whoo! Titus chapter 3. Are you there? I need someone to read for me, please. All right. Okay. For we ourselves also were sometimes foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving diverse lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But after the kindness and love of our God, Savior towards man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, which is shared on us abundantly through Christ our Savior, that being justified by his grace, we should be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is the faithful saying, and this... Sorry. The last part of verse 7 says that we should be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Now, why does he say according to the hope? Because an heir will consistently live in hope of his inheritance. Uh, does that make sense? If, if, if you have a prince, he's the heir to the throne. But he is not the king yet. And so he's an heir according to the hope that he will rule. So when he says heirs according to the hope of eternal life, what then is the inheritance that a Christian receives. So what is your inheritance as a Christian? Eternal life. Does that make sense? Good. My inheritance is eternal life. That's what I'm promised. That's the hope that does not make us ashamed. Are you with me? Let, let's go there. Romans chapter 5 verse 5. Are you there? Let's start from verse 1. Therefore, 
Being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Uh, so follow me now. Follow me. Are you with me? Follow me. Remember that we established something as the glory of God ultimately. Was that? The Lordship of Christ. Are, are you with me? So when he says we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, what are we rejoicing in the hope of? The Lordship. Makes sense, right? But how was that Lordship attained over our lives? The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Do you understand? And the final giving of eternal life. Does that make sense? Good. So he says, verse 3, And not only so, but we glory in tribulations also, knowing that tribulation worketh patience. Now, note that this patience that the tribulation is working is not that you will just be soft, you just have the ability to wait. No, the tribulation worketh patience in that, now, remember context, we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. That is, we rejoice in hope of the Lordship of Jesus. That is, we rejoice in hope of eternal life that gives us access to our citizenship in Christ. Are we together? So when we face tribulations here, it works patience. What are we patiently waiting for? Come on, what are we waiting for? Eternal life. The Lordship of Jesus. The tribulations, they give us perspective. Don't worry. The tough times are here, but there's a time coming that is better. Do you understand? Uh-huh. He says, he says, and um, tribulation worketh patience, and patience, experience, and experience, hope, and hope makes not ashamed. Because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost. This verse of scripture, many people quote it all the time, but they don't know what it means. What does it mean that hope does not make ashamed? It means that when we have hope for eternal life, you see that thing that we rejoice so dearly for, that lordship of Jesus that we look forward to, we have hope for it, but... Not only do we have hope for it, we have proof for what we hope about. Are you with me? So therefore, our hope will not make us ashamed. We're not going to get disappointed. That's what it means. Why? We've seen the love of God that is shed abroad in our hearts in the giving of the Holy Ghost. Or let me say that in another way. The Holy Ghost is the love of God that is shed abroad in our hearts. Because of the Holy Ghost, the hope makes not ashamed. So the Holy Ghost is proof that you will have eternal life. Does it make sense? The Holy Ghost is proof that you will have eternal life. Praise the Lord. Let's go back to Ephesians. Are you learning something today? I hope so. All right. Well, verse 11, right? In whom also we have obtained an inheritance. What is that inheritance? Eternal life. Are we together? Being predestinated according to the purpose of him who worketh all things 
after the counsel of his own will. Now, please pay attention. We are predestinated according to the purpose of him who worketh all things according to the counsel of his will. Do you know what according to the counsel of his will means? That is, he doesn't take external advice. Do you understand? In working all things. Instead, he looks at what he wants. And then he starts to do, he proposes everything according to what he wants. Now, let us, now we've established what he wants. Is that correct? We established that what he wants is the lordship of Jesus Christ. Which means that if he is proposing all things according to the counsel of his will, then what will be the proposing of things be, and what will the proposing of things be unto the lordship of Jesus Christ? Are we together? That is, the, the predestination, therefore, would not be that this person will go to heaven or this person will go to hell. The predestination would be the lordship of Christ over all things. Are you with me? Now, note, heaven or hell is not the will. Are you with me? Heaven or hell is not the will we are talking about. The will is the lordship of Christ over all things. Heaven is a place for those who have submitted to the lordship of Christ. Hell is a place for those who haven't. Are we together? Good. So, heaven or hell is not the will. Which means his predestination is not unto heaven or hell. All together? Good. His predestination is not unto heaven or hell. His predestination is unto the lordship of Christ above all. Are you together? So, God doesn't predestine people. He predestines purposes. Now, when you understand that, you will now, you will now see the fine interplay of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. God sovereignly decided that everyone in Christ will be saved. Man will be presented with the gospel, but he will have a responsibility to accept it. Are you with me? So we see that interplay. God's sovereignty and man's responsibility working hand in hand to bring about man's man's salvation. That is the only way it is possible that God is just if a man falls and goes to hell. Do you understand? And he is still just if a man goes to heaven. <laughs> I think one of these uh, midweek services, I'll discuss the question of God and killing. Is God a moral monster? We'll have, we'll have that interesting conversation. One of these midweek services. Until then, use this one to hold body. Praise the Lord. Alright, verse 12. That we should be to the praise of his glory who first trusted in Christ. In whom, you know what, let me stop here. Let me stop in verse 12. We will start verse 13 because if I start talking about the seal of the Holy Spirit, we'll sleep here. 
Amen. Amen. Have you learned something today? All right. Have you got any questions? Anybody have a question? Okay, William, you have your hand up. Just come and use the mic. Okay, so sir, um, based on God's um, purpose, uh, which he um, wants to do, he can sovereignly choose someone to do something. Does that go? What do you mean by can sovereignly choose someone? So, uh, what, what example can I give here? Um, okay, let's, let's take Mary, the virgin birth. So, like, probably there were other virgins around that time in Israel. But his choice of Mary was a sovereignty. Was a sovereignty. So, in that sense, he had a purpose for Christ to come through a woman's womb. Uh huh. That was a purpose. But he, in his sovereignty, he chose that person to be Mary, though there were other virgins around. Okay. Thank you, sir. All right. Any other questions? Any other questions? Please ask. Um. um I'm not afraid, and we have time actually. Any other questions? Ah, there's something I wanted to say that's left my head. If it comes back, I'll say it. Any other questions? What? All right, okay, okay, thank you. Ooh, thank you, Lord Jesus. The Bible doesn't have to be complicated. It doesn't have to be complicated. That's the truth. It doesn't have to be complicated. Okay, you have a question? Okay, so it's not like a question, question, just like a clarification for um, Theophany. Just sort of giving it the balance of the sightings of God in the Old Testament and Jesus Christ saying that no one has seen the Father except at his time. All right. So when Jesus said, um, you know what, let's, let's read that, shall we? Um, someone should open that for me. John 1, good. Let's start from let's start from um verse 14 And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory the glory as of the only begotten of the father full of grace and truth John bare witness of him and cried saying this was he of whom I speak. He that cometh after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. And of his fullness have we received, and grace for grace. For the law was given by Moses, but grace and what? Pay attention to that. And what? Came 
by good. Now, before we go forward, because an understanding of those verses will give you a clearer understanding of verse 18. Are you with me? So he says, of his fullness have we received grace for grace. It's easy to think of his fullness have we received with making reference to receiving of spiritual gifts or receiving of healings. Are, are we together? That's the common misconception or the common mindset. But he clarifies, for the law came through Moses, all right, but grace and truth through Jesus. So of his fullness have we received, grace for grace, would be speaking more to revelation. Is that correct? Is that correct? Is anybody confused? Should I take it again? All right. John bear witness of this saying. This is whom of, um, this was, or you know what, let's start from verse 14. And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory as of the only begotten of the father, full of grace and truth. What does that verse mean? It means when we saw Jesus, we knew we were seeing the true son of God. Do you understand? In the things he did and the things he taught, full of grace and truth. Are you with me? Good. He says, John bear witness of him, saying, and cried, saying, This is he of whom I spake, that he that cometh after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. And of his fullness have we received grace for grace. For the law, so, okay. Let me not get to grace for grace first. Of his fullness have we received. Thank you for listening. For more, head over to circlechurchglobal.org or visit any of the church campus addresses on the website. God bless you.